We're going to convene this subcommittee today to discuss China's role in the Middle East. Thank our witness for being here today, as uh, well as my colleagues. Um, as much as it's possible in an open setting, my goal in this hearing is to have a frank conversation so that we can appropriately factor China's Middle East goals as we right-size American goals. The United States has been the dominant power in the Middle East for decades. America's deal with regional despots, particularly in the Gulf, has long been a pretty straightforward one, providing security in exchange for the steady provision of oil to the global economy. But for the past 20 years, several of the dynamics that underpin this arrangement have changed. First, back in 1980, the United States relied heavily on energy imports to power our economy. At that time, one-third of all oil that we use in the United States came from the Gulf. Today, the United States produces as much oil as it gets from abroad, and only 9% of these imports come from Gulf countries. Today, the U.S. is not totally dependent on Gulf fossil fuels, but China is. Today, more than 50% of China's oil comes from the Gulf states. Second, our allies in the Gulf no longer honor the deal that was made decades ago, even though we still have a big physical military presence in the Gulf, bigger than ever before, and we keep giving Gulf nations a pass on human rights violations. Too often, our Middle East allies act in conflict with our security interests. Recently, for instance, uh, it took a high-profile trip from the American president to Riyadh in order to simply convince our supposed allies in the region to produce more oil to address spiraling global prices. And third, today, China now needs the Middle East more than we do. Consider this stunning fact. The value of Saudi fossil fuel exports to China has grown from $1.5 billion in, 20, in 2000, just about 20 years ago, to $43 billion today. It's no secret why China is deepening its ties to the region. It's the Chinese economy, not the U.S. economy, that has become completely dependent on Middle East oil. But this hearing gives us an opportunity to explore China's role in the Middle East and help us craft a policy that enables us to counter China's influence in the areas that threaten U.S. interests. Well, finding ways to cooperate in the limited areas where our interests align. There's no question that China's growing presence in the Middle East presents a challenge to the United States that we have to confront. With such a large U.S. military footprint in the region, we must assure that China does not get its hands on our most sensitive technology. Frankly, that's why I've opposed selling F-35s and Reaper drones to the UAE. And while Middle East oil doesn't matter to us as much as it used to, it still matters. And so we don't want China to get a monopoly on the Middle East energy trade. But China is also an attractive partner to dictators in the region who are looking for more tools of repression and surveillance that the Chinese have perfected. As the world's leading human rights and democracy defender, the U.S. should push back on the spread of these tools of repression. But at the same time, I hope this hearing considers whether it's worthwhile to approach every Middle East issue through a lens of U.S.-China competition. For example, China's recent sale of armed drones to Saudi Arabia does not mean that we should rush to provide those drones ourselves. The Saudis have a clear record of misusing such weapons against civilians in Yemen, and we're right to distance ourselves from these abuses. In addition, Chinese investments into the vanity projects, shining new cities for Egypt's President Sisi and the Saudi Crown Prince, they pose questionable returns for investors. There's no compelling reason why the United States should be seeking to counter China's investments in these projects with our own funding. And of course, there are limited areas where China and the U.S. share interests. We shouldn't ignore them. For example, both China and the United States have a shared interest in securing shipping lanes in the Gulf. 
both benefit from an Iranian nuclear deal to avoid proliferation. And both the United States and China benefit from stability in the region. Finally, we should recognize that while China's influence in the region is increasing, it has limits and that the United States' commitment to the region, despite much hyped fears of abandonment, continues as we remain the leading security partner for every country in the region, except, of course, for Iran. We shouldn't be so insecure as to believe that our partners in the Middle East think China can be taken seriously as an alternative to the United States. For example, while the United States preserves the security of the shipping lanes in the Gulf as a global public good, it's hard to imagine China acting to preserve anything but its own shipments. And let's face it, if a war erupted between the Arab Gulf countries and Iran, the Chinese Navy is not sailing to anyone's defense. Recognizing these limitations to China's influence gives us real leverage in the region, and we need to use it to reset our relationship. For decades, our approach to the Middle East has been overly militarized at the expense of economic diversification and inclusive political reform, which leads me to my last and most important point. We should not deprioritize de political and economic reform priorities in the Middle East for the sake of competing with China. Poor, corrupt, and unequal societies make for a combustible mix that can quickly cause superficially stable regimes to collapse quickly. In the long run, the most stable countries are democracies, and we shouldn't lose sight of that goal. I look forward to the witness's testimony today to learn more about how the State Department is diagnosing and taking on this important issue. And with that, I'll turn to the ranking member for opening remarks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this hearing. And thank you, Assistant Secretary Lee, for being here today. I believe this topic's critical for us to examine as great power competition is not confined to one geographic region. While we rightly seek to prioritize countering the Chinese Communist Party, we must acknowledge that Beijing is not just a challenge in the Indo-Pacific, but also a challenge uh, to our interests across the Middle East, in Africa, and beyond. America's role in the Middle East is at a critical moment, and our approach to our relationships with our partners will speak volumes to our allies and our adversaries alike. Perception is vital, and given some of the administration's policy missteps, one could come to an erroneous conclusion about America's role, intent, and influence in a region where we have traditionally been the partner of choice. The withdrawal from Afghanistan, a somewhat nebulous Indo-Pacific strategy, an Iran policy that could disrupt the delicate balance of power, restrictive arms sales policies, the Biden administration's belated embrace of the Abraham Accords. It's not hard to see how our adversaries are weaving these threads into a broader narrative of U.S. disengagement. As our perceived light wavers, China is seeking to fan theirs into a flame. We already know the region is key to Beijing's economic ambitions. A substantial portion of its overland and maritime trade routes rely on re regional access, requiring not just stability, but influence no matter the cost. A GCC ministerial visit to China in January showed that the desire to deepen economic co cooperation is mutual. Regional governments want to diversify their economies, and Foreign Minister Wang's efforts to continue talks of a free trade agreement represent an opportunity that's too good for our Gulf partners to pass up. Militarily, 
We only need to look at the overtures Beijing has made to anyone willing to listen, including both partners and adversaries of the United States. Since the end of the UN conventional arms embargo on Iran, China has a new and willing partner who will flood the region with Chinese arms, including to proxies intent on the destruction of Israel. These examples show how Beijing has studied our example and is playing to what it perceives as our vulnerabilities. Where America must hold herself and her partners to a higher moral standard, Beijing instead distances itself with talks of mutual benefits and neutral engagement. This is the CCP party line when partnering with countries at ideological odds with each other. Where, where we must tie U.S. foreign assistance to positive steps in health, human rights, food security, and any other number of themes, Beijing only opens its checkbook. So while the CCP might claim that the countries of the Middle East should be free from U.S. influence, they're taking every possible means to exert their own influence and control. Perhaps this may offer an opportunity. As its interests in the region grow, China will not be able to maintain an image of distant objectivity. Deepening engagement with ideologically opposed regional players will eventually drag China into a geopolitical quagmire. Secretary Leaf, I, I hope you can address these concerns today and answer some key questions today, such as what will it take to win that competition? And what can Congress do to support that goal? We want to help, all of us. When it comes to national security, we can't afford to spend time playing politics. I believe we're at a crossroads in our relationship with the region. The steps we take now will determine if the administration's actions will permanently alter the geopolitical landscape or reinforce why America has been a stalwart and dependable ally of choice to our allies there for over 70 years. I'm pleased that we're here to discuss such an important issue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Young. It's now my pleasure to introduce the Honorable Barbara Leaf, Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. Assistant Secretary Leaf assumed that role in May 31st of this year uh, after a interminably long confirmation process. Um, she has served as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for the Middle East and North Africa the National Security Council, previously served as our Ambassador to the UAE, which is, I think, where I first met um, Secretary Leaf and various other high-level positions, both in Washington and abroad, including Rome, Sarajevo, Cairo, Tunis, and Jerusalem. Ambassador Leaf, uh, we welcome you to the committee. We ask that you limit your opening remarks to about five minutes, and the rest of your testimony will be submitted for the record. Chairman, <clears throat> Chairman Murphy, Ranking Member Young, members of the subcommittee, thank you for this opportunity to share our assessment of the People's Republic of China's activities in the Middle East and North Africa. But let me first convey on behalf of the Secretary and the Department of State as a whole um, our deepest condolences on the tragic loss of Congresswoman Walorski and her two staff members yesterday. It was shocking, and, and indeed our, our prayers and, and our thoughts are with the families and loved ones. As we assess uh, China's influence in the region today, in those areas that matter most to our national security, we retain a clear advantage. And that's due to a long legacy across administrations of US leadership on crucial issues of security, conflict resolution, and engagement with partners over the decades on all the issues that matter most to the peoples of the region. 
The PRC's economic ties with the region, however, as you both noted, reveal growing influence that requires our scrupulous attention and action. In 2000, PRC trade with the Middle East and North Africa was about $15 billion. By 2021, it had reached $284 billion. That jump was driven in no small part by China's voracious appetite for the region's energy, as well as its quest for markets uh, for its exports in the region and, and beyond. It remains in our national interest as the leader of the global economy to ensure the region's supply, reach, uh, the energy supply reaches world markets and that sea lanes remain open and secure. The PRC has shown neither desire nor the capability to assume that role, and frankly, nor should we want it to. My concern with this economic trajectory lies in two critical areas, and then there is a third uh, set of issues uh, on which we must remain vigilant. First is the PRC's unfair or unsavory practices in attempting to leverage its investment in trade, especially in critical areas of research and technology, to increase its global edge unfairly. That can mean theft of IPR or misuse of access to national telecoms networks. And PRC acquisition of strategic infrastructure, ports for example, may open new vulnerabilities for some states in the region. My second concern is the longer-term impact of the PRC's steady accretion of economic ties and how Beijing might use those relationships for political and even coercive advantage. There's no question we are already seeing a more competitive environment in the region for the U.S. And this creates conditions where the PRC can coerce countries on U.N. votes and support for its positions on issues like Taiwan, the Uyghurs, and Russia's brutal war in Ukraine. Third, while, uh, and importantly, while China's current military engagement in the region is relatively limited, there is clear potential over the longer term for economic relations to morph in the direction of more robust defense relationships as the PRC markets its mili military hardware aggressively. And where P PRC acquisition of strategic infrastructure goes, there is a potential, uh, almost a certainty, for dual use or outright military presence. As President Biden underscored last month in Jeddah, this administration advancing aggressively an affirmative framework for America's engagement in the region, de-escalating regional conflicts, enhancing our partnerships for collaborative work on issues that affect the whole region, and promoting regional integration in economic, political, and security terms, and that includes Israel. President Biden made clear in engaging with regional leaders in July that we are here to stay. We're not going anywhere, and we're certainly not going to leave a vacuum in the Middle East for Russia or China or Iran for that matter to fill. Secretary Blinken has underlined that our approach to the challenges offered by the PRC globally is to invest, align, and compete. Invest in the foundations of our strength at home, align with partners and allies, and harness those assets to compete with the PRC. And that means in the Middle East as much as around the world. So we're aligned with partners concerning the critical threat posed by Iran on the need to work in common on challenges ranging from climate change food and water insecurity, contesting the forces of extremism, dealing with fragile states, supporting refugees, and resolving the still unresolved issue of a two-state solution for Israelis and Palestinians. We're engaging both bilaterally as well as through regional organizations and through new structures that we have helped create, the NEGO Forum as one of them, that will build on the new relationship, expanding relationships between Israel and Arab states. The PRC hasn't just been absent from this space that I have just described. In some significant instances, Beijing has actively acted against the region's security, whether in its relations with Iran or Syria 
or its sales of advanced weaponry, UAVs as, uh, as an example, that are used by non-state actors to, against our Gulf partners and others. So for all the region's challenges, the U.S. deep and decades-long strategic cooperation with regional partners remains an asset that no country, certainly not the PRC, can hope to match. But we must remain engaged and continue to demonstrate the collaborative leadership the region requires and desires. Thank you very much, and I'm happy to take your questions. Uh, thank you very much, um, Ambassador. Thank you for uh, that candid testimony. I'll start with a round of questions and then uh, open it up to the committee. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, China's relationship with Iran uh, and China's relationship with the Gulf. There is this collective freakout that happens in the Gulf when the United States enters into a diplomatic conversation with Iran. Our Gulf allies sort of posit to us that it's all or nothing. You're either with us or you're against us. And yet China seems to be able to have it both ways. China is deepening its ties with Iran and deepening its ties with the Gulf. Iran doesn't shut its doors as China gets more militarily involved in the Gulf. Um, is there a risk at some point that China is going to be asked by the Gulf countries to fish or cut bait, to choose sides? Or alternatively, why does China get to sort of play both sides while the United States is told that uh, we have to choose? So, Senator, uh, I, I think I would, um, I would differ with you on a couple of key tenets. Now, it is true that if you go back uh, eight, ten years at the at the dawn of the uh, the efforts to uh, negotiate uh, the JCPOA, there was a collective freakout, no question. And in, notwithstanding regular efforts um, by the Obama administration to read uh, Gulf partners into where we hope to go on on the eventual JCPOA, uh, there was great anxiety. Uh, I would not say that that anxiety is missing as such, but it is. The, 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 the Gulf countries are very focused on the regional dimension of what Iran is doing. And, and this visit that I just uh, spoke, uh, spoke to by the president um, is, is the punctuation point of a, of a body of work for the past year and a half and, a, and, a, and a, will provide forward momentum on further such work that goes to assisting our partners with their self-defense, bolstering their resiliency um, and networking uh, more deeply um, uh, in security defense, intelligence uh, terms, um, their ability to, uh, to deal with the threats emerging from Iran's um, provision of, of arms to proxies. Um, it is an irony, I am the first to say, that those UAVs that these proxies use, they're Chinese. Now, they're not provided by the state, but the state does not attempt to curtail that, that flow. Um, I see the Gulf states uh, in terms of, you know, they, they have taken a different approach to Iran. They, uh, uh, they themselves have channels with Iran to manage those relationships. Uh, we have encouraged those diplomatic conversations. Um, are they going to hold China to account? Uh, I look forward to that day because, frankly, uh, China is getting away with murder in, in some terms. Um Second, let me present to you an argument that I find compelling but not persuasive, but I think it's important for us to talk about. And that is this. As China becomes more dependent on exports from the Gulf relative to U.S. dependency, some would suggest that China should, in fact, pick up more of the tab for 
regional security. Security of the Gulf, frankly, may matter more to them than it matters to us, and yet we pick up almost all of that cost. They have a bigger military presence today than they did, but it is still our guarantee in the region that matters. Um, so is there any constructive role that China can play with respect to regional security, or should we view this as a zero-sum game? Any increase that China has with respect to military cooperation or partnership in the region is a loss to U.S. national security interests. Um, I, I, to be quite frank, uh, you know, as I said earlier, I would not want to see China pick up the role that we have had for almost 80 years in, in securing sea lanes and the flow of commerce and energy supplies for the entire global economy. It's a big job. It's a big responsibility. I'd rather it be on U.S. Soldier, uh, shoulders than Chinese shoulders because uh, what, uh, th that, that puts the dependency of our own Asian partners uh, at risk. Uh, on the, in terms of that, uh, those energy supplies. There is a constructive role. China could play a constructive role vis-a-vis -vis Iran, uh, but they don't. Yeah, China could play a constructive role. They aren't, which is why I find your argument persuasive. Um, but I think it's important to, to have the conversation. Um, I'll have other questions for a second round, but we've got members waiting to ask questions, so I'll turn it over to Senator Young. Thank you. China has uh, cemented itself, picking up on, on uh, the chairman's uh, many uh, questions related to Iran and, and its relationship with China. China cemented itself as, as one of, the, of Iran's most reliable allies. Iran's foreign policy agenda has, has focused on strengthening an axis of resistance, which means support from uh, another power is vital. Chinese oil producers have provided Iran an economic lifeline as it attempts to circumvent U.S. sanctions. They provided diplomatic cover for Iran as it accelerates its nuclear program and violates its obligations to the IAEA. And they've signed cooperation agreements that uh, seek to bring their countries closer together economically and militarily in, in coming years. Um, Failing to stand up to China will hamper our long-term efforts to prevent Iran from acquiring uh, a nuclear weapons capability. We can all hope for that. A few questions along these lines. For starters, uh, can you update me and my colleagues on, uh, on the current status of China's purchases of Iranian crude oil? Uh, Senator Young, I don't have those precise figures. I will get them for you. But what I can say to this issue, we, are, we have just rolled out a third set of sanctions on uh, entities that are trafficking in, this, uh, in these goods. Um, we did so on August 1st. We did a previous round in July. And you will see uh, an increasing tempo of these sanctions. But I will get you those figures. Thank you. As, as it relates to those sanctions, what steps are being taken to ensure uh, stricter compliance with those sanctions and, and preventing Iran from using China to circumvent pressure? Um, this is an issue of, of, uh, of work between the State Department and uh, Department, uh, the Treasury Department, uh, Department of Treasury, OFAC, and it is ongoing. It is, you know, there is a, 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 a quite a bit of work being done on an ongoing basis to illuminate uh, the, the map, and then to go after those targets. Maybe we could get an update from, from OFAC or, or state, whomever, 
Could that be something you could help with or, or would? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Right, thank you. Um, what has the Chinese role been in negotiations toward a return to the JCPOA? Does, does the China-Iran uh, relationship represent an obstacle towards the Biden administration's stated objective of a longer and stronger deal? So I would say that it has been, uh, it has been constructive within the bounds of the, J, uh, the, the P5 plus one efforts. Uh, China has been clear that it would like to see uh, Iran and the U.S. resume uh, compliance for compliance approach, uh, uh, resumption of the JCPOA. Um, I, I think my concern uh, goes as much to how China does not pressure Iran at the appropriate points when we see kinetic activity and where we see clear evidence that Iran is providing lethal aid, resources, et cetera, uh, et cetera, to proxies in the region that are extraordinarily destructive. But within the bounds of the P5 plus one, they have been uh, reasonably constructive. Uh, China and Iran, they, they recently announced a 25-year deal uh, designed to deepen their strategic relationship. What's the status of this deal? Do we believe that uh, increased cooperation between the countries poses an increased threat to American troops or American allies in the Middle East? So uh, the deal was uh, the, the partnership, the strategic partnership um, uh, arrangement was inked last year. Um, I think many of the elements of it would would necessarily not be, um, that they would not be uh, implementable given the strictures of sanctions. But it certainly gives a direction uh, to China's uh, prioritization of Iran as, a, as one of five countries that it see as key to its own influence in the region. Uh, there's no direct threat as such at this moment to US forces, uh, but it is definitely, uh, it is definitely not uh, not good for the region. So, are they are, are they contemplating uh, weapons co-development, uh, intelligence sharing? Maybe you could just give me. A, I, I don't think I have that information for this setting, but I would be happy to come back to you in a classified setting to give you more of a read into that. Okay, we'll likely take you up on that. Thank you so much, Chairman. Senator Sheen. Thank you. Um, thank you for being here. Ambassador, um, I, I want to, today is the second anniversary of the explosion at the Port of Beirut. And Lebanon has had many challenges over the last couple of years. And it certainly provides fertile ground for China as they're looking at the Middle East. They, um, they have been looking at helping with the Port of Beirut. 40% of Lebanon's ports are owned by China. And the head of Hezbollah, Nasrallah, Hassan Nasrallah, has said that Lebanon should be looking toward more friendly nations, such as China, for support. So what are, what are we doing to try and counter that fertile ground for China to make mischief in Lebanon? You know, Senator, we are really actively engaged on the ground and from Washington um, uh, with uh, the government of Lebanon and helping, working to shore up what is a real prospect of, of state collapse and societal collapse. Um, you know, 
the in, and and China is not, I would say, in the mix at all, either in terms of significant humanitarian assistance or uh, economic assistance. And I I I'd be happy to share with the committee some of the 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 differences in the way the U.S. and China approach the Middle East because it's quite striking. We look at the, the sure. trade volume and port acquisition. And it is, um, it, it's striking, but it's, it's pretty extractive. It's pretty one-way um, um, benefit. Um, and I would say the same thing is true in, in, in Lebanon. Lebanon is not, not much of a business environment, frankly. Um, the, the, the pickings are pretty slim, and, and really, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not so concerned about the China threat there as I am about the threats to the, the fabric of society itself. Um, so our efforts are, are in terms of uh, getting the government to, to um, agree to an IMF program, which will release funds and, and sustainable um, uh, funds to, uh, to, to meet their budget and their services. Of course, we are uh, working on what we hope will be um, uh, an energy bailout arrangement. Um, and uh, what I would just say is, the ports notwithstanding, I really don't see the threat uh, to our interests in Lebanon coming from China so much as, as from the, mm -hmm. the parlous state of the, of the state itself. Well, one of, obviously I mentioned the port because so much of what we see China doing is trying to control the ports as part of the significant infrastructure in the Middle East. and. How are, how are we working with the Development Finance Corporation, with the IMF, with other agencies to give countries an alternative we are for doing those infrastructure investments? Right. Well, we're doing a number of things. One, as you say, with those, Ellen's, we are doing matchmaking with DFC and partner governments. We're also finding other prospective uh, investors uh, for countries who are being approached um, by China on, on ports. Um, so, and, and we have a number of partners who are very engaged. I don't really want to go into it in this setting, but, uh, but I can tell you that um, this, is, this is not um, a, a sort of a wide open field and, and China is the only uh, country um, with these ports in play. They, they do have, they have acquired stakes in about a dozen ports across the region. Uh, but I would also say um, the other piece of this is that we are in regular discussions with governments about the risk factors attendant to uh, strategic infrastructure being bought up either in part or in whole by even private sector, Chinese private sector actors, let alone state-owned enterprises, because of this military-civilian fusion and the, the plethora of laws, Chinese laws that require Chinese private sector as well as state-owned enterprise to basically give access to their intelligence and to their military. So we have lit that up for a number of countries, and it has been persuasive. Well, I think helping us to better understand how we're working in those areas is helpful, because um, I remember a conversation Senator Murphy and I had with a former prime minister of Greece several years ago when China was investing in the port of Piraeus, and he said, you know, well, we went to the EU and the EU couldn't help us and we came to you all and you wouldn't help us. And so the Chinese offered help. So I do think we've got to, got to be very clear that we have to provide, help countries have some alternatives to what's being offered by China. 
Uh, Senator, if you'll, Senator Murphy, if you'll allow me to finish responding. Uh, uh, we see absolutely eye to eye with you on that, Senator. And we are very engaged both in lining up alternatives but to really illuminating the risk factors. And I think going back to the issue of Greece and a number of countries around the world, yes, that was sort of the going in proposition. Why would you turn away free money? I mean, what's not to love about an investor coming in except the other side of that investment? You know, there has, has been debt financing issues around the globe, uh, but there are sovereignty issues. Um, nobody's signing up when they offer a commercial uh, port for in part or in whole for sale. Nobody's signing up for, for the PLA to, to use that facility. And yet, um, this is what is becoming um, uh, clearer as a risk for countries. And I'm, and fortunately, the other thing that we have going for us in the, in the Middle East is a, sort of a, a sovereignty neuralgia about things like this. And this is something that we really play to, frankly. Can you explain what you mean more by well, that? Well, I just, I would say an acute sense of sovereignty and, um, and especially when it comes, you know, for instance, in Iraq, strong sense that national assets are national assets, assets and they shall not be uh, even sold off to pri foreign private sector, let alone foreign governments. And so it's, it's, a, it's a residue, it's a legacy of colonial history, but it's quite, it's quite a strong thing and it's something that we can work with. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Van Allen. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman and Madam Assistant Secretary. It's good to see you. Uh, this is an important topic, um, and I've tried to dig into it, and I'm going to submit some questions for the record. Uh, but I, I want to use my time to discuss um, a couple issues regarding Americans detained in Iran, uh, an American lawyer recently detained in the UAE, and what you're doing to get to the full truth and accountability in the shooting death of an American journalist in the West Bank, all part of your jurisdiction. Um, I am satisfied that the administration is doing everything it can uh, to gain the release of the Americans that are detained in Iran. Uh, I have less confidence, at least at this moment, uh, that the administration is doing everything it can to ensure due process in the case of Asim Ghaffour. Uh, as you know, he was tried and convicted in absentia with no notice of the charges, alleging money laundering. He was then arrested in Dubai en route to a family wedding in Istanbul. Uh, he's been sentenced to three years and then, and then more. He has been denied bail and denied access to American lawyers. Um, so in the interest of time, I just ask you for a couple of commitments. Um, will you meet with his American lawyers before the Tuesday hearing? And they're willing to make themselves available at your convenience. Yes, I think, uh, I, think I just had, uh, we just got a re that request yesterday, and yes, I can do so. Thank you. Um, and can you keep um, myself and members of the committee posted on the progress with respect to due process? Absolutely. Um, as, you, as you're probably aware, Deputy Assistant Secretary Daniel uh, Benaim is following this um, minute by minute, and he is keeping me briefed on this, uh, but absolutely. I appreciate it. I had a conversation some time ago with Brett McGurk over the National Security Council. I just, you know, you're a former ambassador to the UAE. You know a lot of the players. I just think it's outrageous that he's been denied due process. He was arrested pretty much around the time the president was in the region, um, a slap in the face. Um, let me go on to the um, killing of American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh in the West Bank on May 11th. 
Uh, Secretary Blinken has repeatedly called for a, quote, an independent, credible investigation and for accountability. President Biden has said the same, just a simple yes or no question. Is, is that still the position of the Biden administration? Uh, the, the need for an independent, credible investigation. Uh, we, we, we have asked that there be a credible investigation. Uh, the Secretary's on record a couple of times calling for an independent investigation. That's a quote. You know, I, I will have to come back to you on that, Senator, because I, that has not been my understanding of where, where our position was, but okay. let me clarify. Well, I, I think you're going to find a number of members very disappointed if that's the case. Um, on, on June 23rd, 24 senators, um, including yes. Senators uh, Murphy and, and Shaheen and others, um, wrote to the president uh, asking for not only an independent investigation, but making it clear that that, re that would require U.S. involvement. Um, and just um, last week, the SFOPS appropriations bill that was released uh, contains similar language, uh, calling upon the administration to have U.S. involvement. Um, on July 12th, uh, a group of SFOPS subcommittee members um, including Senators uh, Leahy, Murphy, Durbin, and myself, sent a follow-up letter to Secretary Blinken. Have you seen that one? I have not. I, I urge you to look at that. I mean, this is, this is why a lot of so. us are concerned. I that, so. Well, a lot of us are concerned that this is not getting the attention it deserves. If you're, as Assistant Secretary, haven't seen it, um, we asked uh, for information regarding uh, the report by the, the U.S. Security Coordinator. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that report? Uh, not in full. I've been briefed on it. I was out there. Um, I, I've been out to the to to speak uh, with our folks several times, um, and I've been briefed in detail on it. And I followed the course of uh, the the U.S. Security Coordinator's work over the course of five some weeks. Yeah. So I'm intimately involved. I have not seen the actual report in by letter. And and if I can just explain, I haven't seen that second letter principally because I just came back into town on the weekend, and I've been really focused on this testimony, but I I, I appreciate that. Well, yeah. if you could take a look at it, because we, we asked for a response by last week. Okay. Um, so if you could get back to us maybe yes. later today to tell us sure. when we can expect a, a response on, on that. And we asked for a significant amount of information uh, regarding that report, which, as you know, just stapled the PA report and the IDF report together and then reached some conclusions, so that was not an independent report. I don't think anybody has, has said it is. Um, if I could just also bring to your attention the fact that the chairman of the full committee here, Senator Menendez and Senator Booker, um, have asked for a senior level classified briefing um, yes. on the state of the investigation. So I, look, I, I, I am concerned that um, the administration is not giving this the attention it deserves. It, it, the secretary says things like an independent investigation, which he did say, and we've called for accountability about a, an American journalist who got shot and killed. Um, we have expressed our desire and our determination to protect journalists around the world, especially in conflict zones. And this is a journalist who was wearing full press regalia at the time she was shot and killed. So I, I just, I, there are a number of us that are not going to allow this to be swept under the rug, um, and we're looking for answers. Um, thank you, Senator. I, I, I completely take all of your points. I can tell you um, the Secretary had a, a lengthy discussion with Minister, uh, Defense Minister Gantz um, uh, 
I want to say it was a week ago, um, and he has been pressing for accountability. Um, but I will be happy to come back to you on all of these issues you raise. Well, thank you, and, and thank you, Mr. Chairman. I would just say an independent, an independent report does not include a PA report, and an independent report does not include an IDF report. That's why members of this committee have asked for American involvement in the investigation. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Senator Van Hollen. Let, let me uh, just uh, confirm that I share Senator Van Hollen's concerns about uh, both getting that independent report, but also uh, seeking accountability for the death of Shireen Abu Akleh, and uh, also his concerns regarding um, the effort uh, to secure due process for uh, Asim Ghaffour. So I appreciate your um, commitment to um, uh, be attentive to the, both of those matters. Um, I actually want to stay, uh, we'll open up for a second round. Um, uh, there might be a couple other members who come seeking recognition as well, but um, I actually want to stay on UAE for a moment. Um, the Abraham Accords uh, were a success, a victory for stability in the region, um, but they didn't exist in a vacuum. There were commitments that were made in coordination with those accords um, that um, should, cause, should, should cause us concern. One of those commitments was the sale of F-35s and Reaper drones to UAE. The Trump administration rushed into that sale without doing the due diligence, and if they had done the due diligence, they would have figured out that there was real risk of appropriation of U.S. Uh, technology um, by China. Uh, and that is, I imagine, why we have seen a suspension of that sale by the Biden administration. Um, I understand there's a limit to what you can say in an open setting, um, but I think it's important for us to understand at a basic level um, why um, there are concerns uh, about the choices that UAE has made. I mean, at essence, uh, what they did was choose China's 5G technology over the F-35. Um, and so maybe you can talk for a moment um, about the, the threat to the compatibility of Gulf defense and U.S. systems um, if our allies continue to make decisions to more fully integrate themselves with Chinese technology. So um, I would say a couple things, and then I've got to think. I've got to step carefully um, in this setting. Uh, but you're right. Um, the there there were there were there was a complex of issues attendant to that prospective sale that were sitting on the desk, as it were, when the administration uh, came into office, and it was one of the first issues on which um, the administration had to grapple. And frankly. Um, it, it, clearly, um, the, the 5G issue was just one of several, uh, one of a list of things uh, that needed um, much greater clarity uh, and uh, much better agreement, clearer agreement, detailed agreement on rules of the road uh, for any prospective sale, given the, um, you know, the, 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 the cutting-edge, state-of-the-art technology that would be at risk by... <clears throat> Uh, a, a number of things that were in the mix at that time um, in terms of the UAE's defense relationship uh, with China. So um, the, as, I, as I recall, 5G preexisted um, uh, and was sort of not factored in, we thought, appropriately into the consideration of the deal, and so it was one of the issues. Um, 
So uh, I would just simply say that in, 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 in more broadly, we take deadly seriously um, the issue of protecting our technology, our systems, our personnel. Um, and thus, this issue of Huawei and other untrusted vendors is, a, is an issue of discussion with us across the region. And we've been pretty successful in pushing it, basically, uh, people out of the direction of, of, uh, of uh, purchasing that technology in a number of cases. Um, we have not had active discussions recently on the F-35, but that will still be in the mix. There are a number of things, and obviously, uh, Senator, to say the least, I'd be happy to come back and do this more in a more detailed uh, fashion in a classified setting. And, and I would just simply encourage my colleagues on the committee, and specifically on the subcommittee, to, to get that classified uh, brief um, regarding um, some of the very difficult decisions the administration has to make about uh, technology conflicts in the UAE. Um, let me ask one more question in the second round, I'll turn it over to Senator Haggerty. Um, and I want to talk about drone technology um, because part of this sale to UAE is the MQ-9s, but I maybe want to back up and talk more broadly about drone technology. This is a nightmare technology in the wrong hands. Uh, and it's a competitive landscape in which the United States has technology, but the Chinese have technology. Often the argument gets made to us, well, we need to sell this technology to countries because if we don't, the Chinese will, and there's no strings that come attached with the transfer of Chinese drone technology. At least if the United States provides the technology, we will have some input into how it's used. That's a pretty unsatisfying and unsavory answer because often this is just about a, 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 a owner of the, the technology being not responsible but less irresponsible if the United States is involved. So I ask this in the frame of the issue of drones, but you can back it up and be, be, be even more general in the kind of technologies we're talking about. But the question is this, are there still good reasons, including human rights concerns, that we may not want to sell certain weapons systems into the Middle East even if the Chinese are an alternative? Well, I mean, obviously QME is a, is a major, QME is a, is, a, is a bedrock issue, so it has to be, any system has to be calibrated in, in, in that context. Um, the, this tension that you cite, Senator, you're exactly right, and it can sometimes feel very unsavory. Um, the Chinese have gotten their, more than their foot in the door precisely because of their virtual monopoly on drone technology, and they have spread it across the region, helter-skelter. Um, you know, and, and it is condition-free. Um, should we be selling it to partners, should we be selling drone technology to partners? Yeah, under careful, scripted, clear rules of the road. Um, but, um, but it is a huge problem. So yes, there are, there are certain technologies we should not um, provide, and, and it's a case-by-case Situation. Yeah, and I'll just argue that um, we should be careful to lower our standards yes. uh, when it comes to the end use of this technology simply because the Chinese have no standards. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and welcome, Ms. Leaf. I just had a good conversation with uh, John Ricolta, who was very complimentary of your capabilities and, and uh, your service. Um, I know that the conversation was going on as I came in about Huawei. Um, I share concerns with my colleagues about that institution and many like it that are operated by the CCP. In fact, in my 
previous job as ambassador to Japan, I spent a great deal of time working to get Huawei out of the Japanese telecom carriers and getting the Japanese government to agree to have a clean network. It's not inexpensive, it's a lot of hard work, but it's terribly important. Um, at the same time, in the Middle East, the Chinese Communist Party continues to expand their digital silk road with uh, companies like Huawei, uh, expanding systems that connect China with the Middle East, with Africa, and beyond. And I am very concerned about the underseas cables that they are laying, again, with these uh, Chinese systems that make them vulnerable to exploitation. And we have, I think, a very big concern with one of them that uh, I'm sure you're aware of. It's the cable that connects Pakistan and East Africa together with Europe. It's known as the Peace Undersea Cable. Uh, the Peace Cable travels overland from China to Pakistan. Then it runs from both Karachi, Pakistan, and the Chinese-built Pakistani port of Gwadar to stretch out undersea to various points in East Asia, Egypt, and Europe before terminating in the south of France. Huawei is all over this so-called Peace Undersea Cable. And I'm very concerned about any ability of the CCP to cut it, to disrupt it, to divert it, to monitor information that our allies might be using. And I wanted to get your thoughts, Secretary Leaf, uh, on what and how you perceive this threat and what you see the administration's options to address it. So I'm not as well versed, uh, frankly, Senator, on this particular um, technology uh, dilemma or threat for us, and I, I will get myself schooled on it, but I will say more broadly across the region, uh, we are all over this issue of these untrusted vendors in the information and uh, communications technology sphere. And we have been working across the region to inform, uh, illuminate, educate uh, host governments on the risks, uh, risk to their sovereignty, risk to their security. When they have these untrusted vendors in their national networks, uh, they've basically given a backdoor. Uh, to the Chinese government, sure. and there's data theft and so forth. And um, so we have had we have had successes, and yes, there are clearly countries that have already bought into Huawei. Um, and I remember a couple of years ago the same sort of fight argumentation with the with the the UK, um, uh, with this belief they had at that time that they could firewall things. And um, I think people have begun to understand uh, this risk. Uh, so it's an it's an ongoing effort um, for us diplomatically. Um, I will look into this issue of the peace cable and and how we are constructing our approach on that. But we've been very focused on it as concerns the national uh, telecoms. One thing I would uh, urge you to take a look into is the previous administration's work on the SMW six cable, uh, stretching. from Singapore to Marseille, there's a tremendous amount of work that went into dealing with this, this exact concern on, on that undersea cable. And I would just highlight for my colleagues too, the CCP has the articulated goal of controlling 60% of the fiber optic cable market by 2025. That's three years from now. And they're gonna control it with their own technology, with technologies that we know we should be deeply concerned about. So I would uh, very much appreciate your digging into that, Secretary Leaf, and to have um, a further conversation about that as you learn more. And again, look at the example of SMW6 as, as perhaps a way that um, the administration might choose to deal with this. I will do so. Um, let me turn next to um, the um, strategic cooperation agreement between Iran and China that was signed in March of 2021. It's coming to fruition now. Iran has increasingly turned its sights toward China, 
in search of diplomatic, economic, and technological support. And this agreement reportedly includes economic, military, and cybersecurity cooperation. And according to the New York Times, the agreement calls for joint training and exercises, joint research and weapons development, and intelligence sharing. All of this to fight the lopsided battle with terrorism, drug and human trafficking, and cross-border crimes. The deepening cooperation between these two authoritarian regimes potentially gives China a significant foothold in the Middle East. Secretary Leaf, do you agree that this sort of long-term strategic agreement that China struck with Iran poses a significant threat for the United States and our national security interest? And again, I'd like to get your thoughts on what we might do to counter that threat. Oh, you know, most certainly uh, this is this is a very unwelcome turn of events. It's not surprising entirely. Uh, the, the regime in Tehran is itself uh, so supremely isolated, and not just because of of, of our sanctions. Um, it's isolated because of its own actions, its own predatory, destructive uh, behavior within its near abroad as well as the larger region. So um, it has, um, you know, members of the regime have long sort of uh, flirted with the idea that simply turning east, as it were, would um, uh, uh, allow them to uh, you know, evade all these problems. And so that is, that's the logic of the, of the engagement. And for China, of course, China takes an approach. Um, it has, I think, five such strategic partnerships. Um, and um, obviously, uh, to the degree to which uh, Tehran feels it has this, this anchor um, in, a, in a great power, um, it doesn't bode well. Um, it's certainly an issue of concern, and, and um, what we have to do is, again, the hard diplomatic work, the defense work, the security cooperation, intel cooperation with all of those neighbors, um, but not just the Gulf countries. I mean, this, is, this was the logic of the president's visit, going to Israel, uh, meeting with uh, the GCC plus Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, really <clears throat> demonstrating um, again, U.S. leadership and a, a sort of um, an affirmative and collaborative leadership with these countries on the range of issues. It does illuminate rather starkly the way China goes about its business in the region, and it is not to the region's good. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Young, second round? Or actually, I know Senator Shaheed, I guess you have second round. Um, well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I will be quick, and actually, I, my question is really off the topic, but I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity, since you were before us, to ask you about what's happening in Iraq and the unrest there and what we're doing to try and uh, um, help stabilize that situation. Iraq is a consuming uh, issue of, 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 uh, of concern for us. Um, we in the Department of State, uh, at the National Security Council, Department of Defense, are in constant engagement with Iraqi uh, leaders. I, I was on the phone yesterday with our ambassador uh, in Baghdad, and you know we are taking uh, we are taking in in, in one sense um, um, and against the abjuring sort of the the sort of the invitations of various leaders to, for us to get into the fray and for us to sort things out and for us to put the thumb on the scale in this standoff over government formation. And that's not something we're, gonna, we're going to do. And at the same time, we are really leveraging relationships and providing good counsel and above all, counseling these blocks. The Kurds are in an impasse, as you know, which is part of the whole puzzle. 
And then you've got a standoff between solder and, and the framework, uh, the coordinating framework. What we want to see above all is no resort to violence. And there was a, a very tricky 48-hour period there. We are messaging, uh, um, we are messaging aggressively. I will go out there probably in September uh, to do some more work. Um, but it is, it's an issue, it's a set of issues of consuming interest to us. And, um, and uh, we want to do the kind of engagement that puts the responsibility squarely on Iraqi shoulders to manage and to make decisions. Well, I, I certainly agree with that. Obviously, this is a country where America has spent a lot of blood and treasure. And I think there are a lot of people in this country who care very deeply about what happens in Iraq. And I'm glad to hear that we are engaged. Um, there, the, this administration is populated with people who served in Iraq, I certainly did, and who uh, retained a very strong visceral connection to the country, but also it's a, it's a national security must. It's a keystone cape, uh, uh, country for the region. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Young. Uh, Assistant Secretary, I, I want to ask you a few questions about China basing. Uh, in, in the Gulf region. Last year, there were reports well publicized that uh, Chinese was, uh, China was constructing military basing infrastructure uh, at a port site in the UAE. What is, for starters, the status of that project, please? So this is an issue that I would love to come back to you in a classified setting. What I will say is uh, Beijing has made clear that it has a, a, a global a, a plan for uh, a global set of military installations. Um, obviously, Djibouti was its first uh, uh, such installation. We are keeping a very close eye on this, not only in the UAE but elsewhere. Um, and it, it, this is a kind of issue where we're very clear with our partners that, you know, economic relationships are one thing, buying defense articles is another thing, uh, but they're, they're, they, they, they will quickly run up against uh, the bilateral defense relationship itself right. in, a, in a certain direction. Well, good. That's, it seems like a pretty direct message, and it I is. think it's the one that needs to be sent. Uh, has... Has the administration received assurances from the UAE authorities that they've ordered China to permanently halt the port-based construction? So all I can say in the setting is that um, uh, we're, um, we're making headway on, on our discussion. But I, I will be happy to come back and brief you in detail. Sure. Um, what about civilian Chinese infrastructure uh, projects in, in the UAE and the broader Gulf region? Could, are, do you have uh, concerns that those could be cover for Chinese military and security services presence across the region? Yes. And you could speak to that. Yes, I do. Uh, in the sense that, uh, as I said earlier, um, these, uh, these, whether it's a part or in whole, um, purchase, investment, et cetera, it offers an inroad and by Chinese law yeah. must offer a potential use by Chinese intelligence and military. Are, are there particular projects uh, that uh, you could point to that, that are, are especially concerning or that you're eyeballing? Not for the moment. Okay. Not for the moment. 
The Wall Street Journal recently reported that China sought to establish a military presence along the African coast. In Equatorial Guinea, for example, the effort was, was only rebuffed at the urging of U.S. officials. Given its Atlantic coast and its role as both a geographic and economic gateway to both European and African markets, do you anticipate attempts from Beijing to, uh, to do the same in Morocco? We're watching all of these locations very closely, and we are engaging with governments. Um, I, as far as uh, Equatorial Guinea, uh, we made very clear to the government that certain potential steps would raise national security concerns, and that's the kind of dialogue we are ready to jump into um, with any of these countries. Okay. Um, I've got about 80 seconds left, and I'm going to stay under the time threshold here. But every plebe at the Naval Academy, one of the first things you, you learn are the various choke points around the world, right? And the Suez Canal for generations has, has been really vital to uh, our national security and economic security and that of uh, so many others. Um, events there in 2021 illustrate that it can also be an Achilles heel, right? Um, in the event of a serious disruption, like we've recently seen to the Suez Canal, what other fail-safes exist to mitigate risk to the global supply chain? Okay, I'm gonna to have to take that one back for uh, some scrutiny, because if you're talking about you know, blockage of the Suez Canal, I mean, obviously uh, the Department of Defense has many tools at its disposal. In fact, the department and others were involved in, in unblocking the canal, yeah. um, but I'm... It, I bring it up in this context because it's important to uh, China's trade routes in, mm -hmm. in, in Europe and Africa, so that's kind of the thematic nexus, but yeah, that's fine. Thank you. Senator Haggerty, a second round? Um, two, two final questions. Uh, while we have you before the committee, uh, just two non-China related questions for the record. Can you give us uh, an update on the status of uh, proximity talks with Iran relative to the JCPOA? I know we talked about it in the context of, the, of China's role, but I think it'd be good for the committee to get an update on where those discussions stand more broadly. Uh, yes, so um, as you may have seen, um, uh, Special Envoy uh, Mali is in Vienna. Um, he has gone forward for um, at the invitation of um, uh, High Rep uh, Morell, who has put a package out that is largely the package that we last saw in March. Um, so uh, Rob is going to go forward to, to hear where the, uh, the Iranians go, um, come out on this. Um, we are where, where we've been for some months. We are not interested in discussing extraneous issues, uh, which the Iranians keep trying to introduce uh, into the discussion. Uh, so um, we'll have a better sense over the next uh, day or so where things come out, and, I, and I'm sure Rob would be uh, more than happy to come up and, and give you a briefing. Uh, and lastly, news came out yesterday that OPEC Plus approved a pretty meager increase in oil production. They had uh, announced um, earlier that they would be increasing production by 650,000 barrels a day. Uh, yesterday, they announced that that increase for September would only be 100,000 barrels. 
And most global oil and energy economists suggest that that simply won't move the needle on global prices. Um, what do you make of uh, that uh, announcement? So, Senator, I know this is an ongoing discussion uh, uh, between uh, members of the administration and members of OPEC. Um, this is, I think, a first bite at the apple, uh, but more um, there, these, these discussions will continue. I know there are some of the states have said that they're up against, um, you know, they're, they're running out of headroom in terms of uh, further production, but it is an ongoing discussion. Okay, uh, thank you uh, very much for your time today. Um, we are gonna keep the record open for members to submit questions for the record until uh, close of business, five o'clock tomorrow. Uh, and with that, we thank you for your time and this hearing is uh, concluded. Thank you.